I've also heard that he punched out a Tory MP, which does make me respect him a little bit more. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, but then you don't respect Eric Joyce. I do respect Eric Joyce. Not for his political positions, but for his his pugilism. (laughs) (laughs) His violence and how it contributed to the rise of Jeremy Corbyn. (laughs) Ben Bradley is apparently paying tens of thousands of pounds to a food bank and a homeless charity in his own constituency as a result of lying about Jeremy Corbyn. I'll probably speak louder than that. Is it it tens of thousands? Yeah. That's what I said on Sky News. Oh my God. (laughs) Brilliant. I, I was That's actually a perfect soundbite right there. I wonder if Ben Bradley will finally tweet his apology by the time we've finished this recording session. <laughs> to be honest, I think he should, if he's got a sense of humour, he should tweet it at three o'clock in the morning, but that will make it even better for us. Yeah. <laughs> like, the optics of that would be great. Like, just yeah. Yeah, endlessly use that as an attack line. Cowardly Tories can only apologise at the dead of yeah. night. He tweets it when he gets back from the bar at 3am. <laughs> well, I tried to introduce it without fucking up because I usually, I have this reputation for usually messing up the introduction. So. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll we'll give it our best shot. Yeah. Right. Let me just take a swig of water here. Mm. <coughs> right. Hello, welcome. <laughs> Sorry. Hello, welcome <laughs> to Real Politics. <laughs> That's a good start. What? Literally, oh. straight away. All <laughs> we had to do is one syllable just made everybody laugh. It's amazing. <laughs> opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives, I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And, of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent. Who are the hard left, What's Chris? It? Well, we know who the hard left are. <laughs> in the you know, ascendancy within the, within the Labour Party who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were right, right wing. Hard left agenda. Printing money, nationalisation without compensation. That's a hard left wing position. Hard left, the 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 hard left, Welcome to the Real Politic Podcast. Here we are in the Real Politic headquarters, and we've got an exciting show ready for you today. I'm Tom, and I'm joined, of course, by Mr. Double Barrel himself, Jack <laughs> Frame Reed. Hello. Well, no, hello, welcome to. <laughs> I'm just joking, I'm... Tom. Don't worry. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not mad. <laughs> He's I'm not laughing, mad online. Actually. Um, <laughs> and of course, Laura Jolly and Tid. Thank you for joining. Hi. Us. And a very special guest today, uh, the author of The Candidate, Jeremy Corbyn's Improbable Path to Power, winner of the Bread and Roses Award 2017, Alex Nunns. Thank you for joining us, Alex. Hello, thank you for having me. So this book is now out in its second edition, isn't it? it that's right, yeah. It came out first 
Well, I was writing it after Jeremy Corbyn became leader in 2015. And then just as I was kind of finishing writing it, the Labour MPs decided to try and launch a coup against Jeremy Corbyn, which <laughs> with no, absolutely no regard for my publishing schedule or <laughs> you know, Outrageous. Nobody confirmed it with me. I, I didn't hear from Hilary Benn. I was so offended. But anyway, um, so that, that was actually, that was super stressful, I have to say, because, you know, if you've written three quarters of a manuscript and then you think this could all be junked if they get rid of Jeremy Corbyn, what complete waste of, uh, what, like seven, eight months at the time. Yeah, well, so anyway. I, well, at that exact time, I had some coursework due in for my master's and I thought, you know, maybe I'll write something, a kind of essay about Jeremy Corbyn and uh, what's happening in this movement. But then mm. the political context just changed so much every single day. <laughs> I, I, you know, yeah. I could never get a firm hold on which direction to take this piece of writing because one minute he's got a shadow cabinet full of absolute melts and then the next he's benned hillary in the middle of the night and uh, <laughs> just caused endless um, comedy a midnight benning yeah. <laughs> yeah i had to write a whole chapter at that like during the leadership election i had to write the final chapter which was about the coup so yeah. while it was all still happening I was uh, trying, and it's difficult because when you're doing it for a book, you're thinking people might be reading this in two, three years' time or maybe even longer, and it's going to have to sound like it's kind of correct and also not sound too emotional because, you know, obviously um, I was really angry. Yeah. So, so that was hard. Oh, yeah. So anyway, so then the first book came out around about Labour Conference in 2016, and then there was the general election in 2017, and publisher said, can you update the book so we can do a second edition? And so I wrote another kind of 100 pages about the general election. I think it's kind of 35,000 words extra or something like that. But I had to also cut out 30% of the original book to make space for it, which was a nightmare. So you oh, said to me that you streamlined your book quite a lot. So you didn't actually lose too much in the earlier chapters in terms of, you know, actual content. You said, I think you changed bits about the Falkirk selection. But aside from that, nothing really of substance changed. You just kind of made it more concise. Yes. I mean, actually, because I wrote the thing so fast, it was quite loose, the writing. Like if I was writing an article for Red Pepper or something like that, you know, and it was only a thousand words, I'd probably go through it a lot more and, and make it more concise in the first place. But because it's a book, you feel like you have a bit more leeway. So it wasn't that hard to reduce it by 20%. But then the extra 10% was a killer because then you are actually losing proper information. But anyway, this is really boring. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all right. I think it's fair enough to sort of take a look at the writing of the book itself as well as, you know, what it talks about, the general election and the general political context. So, you know, I'm I'm interested in that stuff. So did you say you added a bit to the Owen Smith chapter? Yeah, because I've been writing the coup chapter at the same time as the leadership election, I didn't know what the result was going to be. And, I, you know, mm -hmm. I think I sent it off before Owen Smith made most of his gaffes. So then I had to write, <laughs> <laughs> then I had to write an extra bit covering that to finish off that chapter for the new edition what i love is that you end this chapter making the point that corbyn had fundamentally changed labor's policy direction which was pretty clear to see effectively as soon as that leadership challenge was launched first by angela eagle and then by owen smith and you close the chapter with this fantastic statement from one of Corbyn's spokespeople, which is, in my view, up there with the recent quote from last night about how Corbyn could not name a single cartoon by Matt of the Telegraph that was actually <laughs> funny. And their quote about the Gang of Four, where they were like, great band or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that was fantastic. Um, but this quote is, just briefly, because it's so good. When Smith released a list of 20 policies early in the contest, the Corbyn campaign responded sardonically. 
We welcome Owen's focus on equality of outcome, reindustrialization, and workers' rights, and his support for policies announced in recent months by Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell. Owen's speech today shows the leadership that Jeremy Corbyn has demonstrated in placing economic justice and fairness back at the heart of Labour politics. <laughs> and then the nicest bit there is that then you have a reference, which is... 69. Nice. <laughs> nice. I hadn't noticed that. <laughs> I think that's fortuitous. But So you fleshed that chapter out, which I guess provided a good kind of springboard from which to launch your chronicle of the general election. Mm. Yeah, which starts in the next page, I think, after the one you just, the bit you just read is the kind of scene setting for the general election which takes place in the Tranmere Rover Stadium yeah. in uh, Birkenhead yeah, when the, the first time the Jeremy Corbyn chant was ever heard. I actually tracked down the guy who started that chant but then I couldn't get him to do an interview but that would, I thought that would oh. be quite good if I could have the name. That's like when I got interviewed by the I about people getting called slugs and melts on Twitter <laughs> and oh, really? Carl the journalist who was talking to me kept asking me like are you sure you can't tell me who coined slug and melt and I was just like I'm sorry mate they don't want it in the press. <laughs> <laughs> I mean this guy didn't I'm not sure he didn't want it in the book he just didn't ever get back to me but ah. bizarrely the same guy was also selling a range of um, mayonnaise. Like a... <laughs> you could have promised him like a little plug for the mayonnaise business just well to... i would have done no it would have, but it was he was selling Theresa may mayonnaise and jeremy corbyn mayonnaise during the general election <laughs> Theresa mayonnaise wow. <laughs> it was like that was his business very short-term business i guess but well, i hope he made a bit of election coin I hope he's still making it. I hope yeah. he's still selling it. Hang on. I'm going to try and Google it, see if it's still there, because it had good yeah, funny like, names as well. Yeah, it's got like a website or anything for it. That'd be fascinating. Yeah, it was all online. <laughs> this might go wrong because I may I may never find it. Um, anyway, let's move on. If I find it, I'll say. Well, this is a great scene-setting chapter. Anyway, you write something that I wasn't aware of, which is that Corbyn's team were worried that Pete Doherty was gonna like, you know, like when Corbyn's doing his speech, Pete Doherty like stumbles on stage and like collapses in a pool of heroin or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, the press team were worried about that because this idea that Jeremy Corbyn was going to go on at Libertines gig, he wasn't actually supposed to go on with the Libertines, so that was the rumour. Yeah. Um, he was just, he was always going to go on with a support band, but they didn't decide even t until the day. You know, Jeremy Corbyn was doing another rally on the beach in West Kirby, which was actually quite an interesting rally because it was one that the Labour Party refused to fund, and I think Unite had to fund it directly yeah. because it was in, a, it was basically because it wasn't Alison McGovern's seat. They wanted it to happen in Alison yeah. McGovern's seat. Instead, it happened in Margaret Greenwood's. Oh, yeah, um, and Margaret Greenwood is a solid leftist who's a member exactly. of the Shadow Cabinet. It's kind of like, uh, what have you contributed to Labour in the last two years? Oh, nothing. Here, have all this money for campaigning. Right, so, I mean, this comes into where, maybe we'll talk about this later, but where Labour HQ was sending resources. And so this kind of yeah. rally happened anyway. But while that was going on, the gig had started, and they still weren't sure whether Corbyn would go and do it. And there were objections from Special Branch, who said that it was too dangerous for Corbyn to appear there. And they said to Carrie Murphy, Corbyn's chief of staff, like, he can't do it, it's too, it's too risky. And she just said, oh, don't worry about it, we'll get private security in Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> Outsourcing to the private sector, appalling. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> the hypocritical um, left. <laughs> 
So Pete Doherty, the press people were worried that he could, you know, who knows what he could do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, but then he was late to the gig, you know, in classic oh. Pete Doherty style. He, yeah. He late, <laughs> so they could get Jeremy Corbyn on stage and do his thing. I found the mayonnaise. I found the mayonnaise. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. The Jeremy Corbyn mayonnaise was called Jeremayo. <laughs> <laughs> and of course. Theresa May's mayo was called Theresa Mayo. Of course. Yeah, but, <laughs> <laughs> but Doherty Brilliant. and the Libertines and all the other bands playing, they were quite enthusiastic about the prospect of having Corbyn speaking at their gig, weren't they? Oh, yeah, they wanted it to happen. They were all on side with it. And so, and it's just that, you know, if you're paid to worry about bad headlines, then you worry about bad headlines. But, you yeah, know, yeah. everybody was on side. You know, it was still a risk, though, because this is 19 days before the election day nobody knew what how the crowd was going to react because it was unannounced and people were there you know you've got to remember at this time jeremy corbyn wasn't the kind of um folk hero that he sort of became around mm-hmm. the, you know, after that he was still considered you know the press still thought he was detested by everybody in the country and he was still like yeah. this hapless uh, loser so they didn't know how the crowd was going to react it wasn't glastonbury so it wasn't kind of fairly safe crowd it was uh it's, you know in birkenhead which is a really poor town and basically working class northerners they could have chucked pints of beer at him whatever but instead they started chanting oh jeremy corbyn yeah. <laughs> i love um how you write he has simplified his message for the occasion and his rhetoric is just i love football and i love sport and i want it for everybody <laughs> <laughs> like Corbyn at his best, just kind of he's got a message that really hits the spot. Well, no, but that's exactly you did. That was a really good impression. That's exactly how he did it. He just came <laughs> on and shouted, "I love football." A <laughs> 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 music gig. This is a fantastic chance, an opportunity. We've got football and music all in the same place. Those very wealthy clubs in the Premiership pay you five percent. So we've got grassroots football for everybody in the future. Merseyside and its history of music, it's the music capital of our country. I want a country where everybody can play sport if they want to, every child can learn music, and the society is brought together by that. Do you want housing? Do you want care? Do you want a society coming together? Or do you want selective education and fox hunting? Come together in that brilliant cultural tradition we have. Working class communities that build football clubs. Working class youngsters that play music. And a government that cares about sport, culture and the arts and gives you the space to play and rehearse your music. Thank you for giving me a few minutes and remember this election is about you, about what we can achieve together. Thank you very much. <laughs> mm, I think that's great. And this is redolent of, I think, the kind of stuff that Liam Young is writing about in his new book that he's got coming out, Rise. How Corbyn yeah, was yeah. able to connect to not just youth movements, but I think it's worth saying pop culture extends beyond just the youth now. You know, you have people who are like 50 who are like, I've just been to see the new superhero movie and I loved it. Like, it shows that you're able to connect with something a bit more than just young people if you can kind of 
of reach out to a, a music audience and a football audience. Not effortlessly, because, you know, Corbyn obviously puts his back into these campaigns, but mm. so kind yeah. of naturally. Mm. Exactly. You can't imagine Theresa May going on stage at any gig. Maybe maybe the proms. <laughs> you can't imagine Theresa May getting away with it. I mean, and it was really broad because Jeremy Corbyn did interviews with football YouTube channels and with Kerrang, so for metal, and yeah, um, yeah. Enemy for indie. Lad Bible. Um, yeah, there was Grime for Corbyn. Yeah. Yeah, Lad Bible. Can't um, believe he hasn't done an interview of Real Politic, the real Lad Bible. Number yeah. one but... home of Lad culture. Maybe he's listening. Who knows? He might, he might come up next week. <laughs> Our next. Yeah, I will. Gig. I will still just never get over that picture of Corbyn on the front of Kerrang magazine. Like, that was just a surreal experience for me. I think, and I, I think for a lot of people, because who the hell ever expected some like sixty-eight, however old he was then, basically just like some old politics guy on the cover of a metal magazine for teenagers. Yeah, exactly. Like but this is. Yeah, he was reaching out in ways that nobody ever expected and nobody would ever seen before and probably won't ever be replicated again yeah there's this great quote in the book which i spoke to bobby the guy who runs double down news we were talking about grime for corbyn and stuff because he's mm. kind of friends with the grime eyes and he gave me this quote which is one of my favorites when he said hang on let me find a bit so so i write corbyn's idiosyncrasies which any spin doctor might have considered weaknesses were embraced by the movement and transformed into strengths and then here's bobby's quote for once, young people could look and see there's a dude who in every way is different from them. But wow, he's like them as well. He makes jam, but he's cool in his own way. Jeremy's cool because he's himself. And I think that kind of sums it up, that people yeah. would just, you know, yeah. he, could, he could go into any scene. You know, Jeremy Corbyn doesn't like like metal music or rock music, but he could go and talk to that scene because he's not pretending to. Yeah, you know, yeah. he's not, he's, he, he can go and talk to NME without saying he listens to the Arctic Monkeys. He, yeah. just, you know, he, likes, yeah. he likes the animals and classical music, that's fine, because that's all he's saying he likes. So as long as he's himself and he's authentic, then people are quite fine with that, I think. You yeah. know, his job is politics. That's what they want to hear from him from. I don't want to know what Jeremy Corbyn thinks about, you know, whatever bands are around, because it's not very interesting. But people yeah. who are into bands do want to know what he thinks about politics, because that's going to affect their lives. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. The part I wanted to bring up was from the start of the chapter from The Summer Coup. The same for when you start the summary of the general election, where you talk about the Tramere Rovers Libertines gig, how you kind of describe that, really building up this kind of uh, anticipation for it. I love how you introduced the, the summer coup chapter, because it's just literally it's such a demoralising moment in the book, because it's set in the committee room 14, really, isn't it? Yeah. Where he, he gathers to meet the Parliamentary Labour Party. And, and you describe it basically how it's just this most demoralising kind of meeting where everyone's walking up to him to take a pop at him. Yeah. And it's so utterly brutal and I think as you described in the book you say they're literally trying to break it as a man mm. and um, yeah that's Diane Abbott's interpretation of events uh, yes, wasn't it yeah, yeah, yeah obviously yeah. was there in the room and yeah. then you counterbalance that with these amazing scenes just outside of parliament in parliament square when just thousands of people come out as this last ditch attempted support what I love about the book is just how you kind of really amazingly talk about and kind of really you know because it was that because it was such a demoralizing time when yeah they were just basically turning against him like that and that last ditch effort how long did people have to like get that rally together um 24 hours, they did it. They 24 hours. Yeah. and for ten thousand people to turn out for that in 24 hours as well there's no politician in the country where you'll get that kind of support people coming out in that way it's astonishing that labor mps think that's something that you can just throw away that they'd be yeah. able to yeah. replicate that or in fact in their view get something better with they were so willing some to other mp 
Yeah, it's amazing. Owen Smith, like a lightweight politician, really. Well, he did it in Liverpool, didn't he? That was hilarious when he tried to, to emulate the movement <laughs> yeah. with the ice cream van and like 45 <laughs> people or something. Oh. <laughs> and some of them were in Jeremy Corbyn t-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> that was brilliant. Standing right in front of the ice cream van as well, that woman. She's a legend <laughs> in Liverpool. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, the coup, I thought that was, um, I was there at the rally outside Parliament on that day. And it was the kind of apex of the coup when they had that meeting of the PLP and they were all taking turns to just say, it was all focused on Jeremy Corbyn's yeah. personality, not his politics. It was all just, you're not a leader, you're a threat to the Labour Party. You know? mm. You're um, the only person that can stop the rot. Yeah. The future of this party lies with you right now, whether yeah. you stay or leave. It was Because like, they so don't rude. have the fucking guts to make a principled argument against socialism from the right. Yeah, yeah that's it, basically. They, they haven't really put, I mean, that whole leadership election showed that, that. None of them were willing to, I mean, to be fair, people like Chris Leslie do. You just said we were too right wing. <laughs> <laughs> that is the nature of a hard centre. The hard left, the hard left, the hard left, hard left, the hard left. The hard left. But yeah, it was amazing that, that rally, because I think it did transform the dynamics of it, because it had all been happening in TV studios and in committee rooms, you know, behind closed doors. And then all of a sudden you had this collection of actual people, you know, members of the party in Parliament Square just outside. And the emotion at that rally was so powerful. You know, people were just so angry, but also so kind of determined. And at the same time, you know, I remember MPs were coming out, people like Angela Rayner, who you wouldn't have expected, were coming out and talking to the rally from the top of the fire engine in Parliament Square. And they were getting like massive abuse from their colleagues. You know, people were saying, really? People were saying, how dare you go outside and talk to these thugs and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, gosh. Call off your dogs, Jeremy. Yeah, that's what Jeremy did. <laughs> So it was like a high-tension moment. What we've seen in the last few days is a small number of MPs seeking, seeking, seeking to undermine the democratic decisions of the Labour Party members and the Labour and Trade Union movement. Let me... Let me make it absolutely clear. Jeremy Corbyn is not resigning. But I think it just undermined this whole idea that they could get rid of Jeremy Corbyn behind closed doors or with the help of the media, that they would actually have to take into account that there was the membership out there. And the other thing that happened at the same time was there was that online petition, a vote of confidence in Jeremy Corbyn, which yeah, really yeah. raced to kind of more people who had signed it than had voted for Jeremy Corbyn in the first place. So mm. basically that said, like, if you're going to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn, let's have an election and we're going to win it. And that's basically what happened. Yeah. yeah. So perversely, although Labour was in a very bad state for months afterwards, the coup did act actually solidify Corbyn's mandate as leader of the Labour Party. I think it was really important. I think it was, I mean, ironically, the best thing that could have happened for his leadership, because first of all, it stopped all, because if you remember before the coup, it always felt vulnerable, you know, you always felt like there was going to be some attempt to overthrow him at some point, that it could fall apart, you know, at any moment. Once he'd won the second time, right, that was still there slightly, but it made them think it was more difficult for them to repeat the same tactic. They'd have to come up with something new. But more than that, I think one of the crucial things which people don't talk about is that that second leadership campaign solidified or validated Corbyn's policy platform. So he came out with 10 pledges, which were basically the same, pretty much the same as what he'd come out with in 2015, but they were kind of more neatly packaged. 
And those yeah. 10 pledges yeah. after Jeremy Corbyn was re-elected, they were adopted by conference, you know, just straight after he was elected, not because all the people at conference, that 2016 conference was still dominated, well, not dominated, but had a majority from the right in terms of delegates. So they didn't necessarily agree with the 10 pledges, but, you know, he just won 62%, so they didn't really have much choice but to endorse it. And those 10 pledges then formed the basis for Andrew Fisher's election manifesto in 2017 for the many, not the mm. few. He could put all that stuff in there because it was official Labour policy that had been passed by conference. So ironically... By doing this kind of kamikaze mission to try and get rid of Corbyn, they not only made him stronger in his political position, but they cemented the left policy platform for the Labour Party. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So we should be really grateful. We should thank them. We should uh, send them flowers. <laughs> and I think there's a couple more things that the coup gave the left as well. Firstly, well, not so much giving as taking away, but. Mm all the fucking melts left for Shadow Cabinet. <laughs> like, we got to... I mean, true, there's still a lot of people in the Shadow Cabinet whose views do not necessarily align with my own, but, you know, some of them are doing quite well in their briefs, and there's no one in there who's kind of just actively, day by day, going out and undermining Corbyn. You know, like Hillary Benn and Angela Eagle were just like these gold mines for quotes if, if you were, you know, Kevin Schofield or some other journalist shithead for months and months. <laughs> um, and the other thing is that it gave the Corbyn team and Corbyn's movement another opportunity to become a well-oiled campaigner machine yeah no i think that's all true and i think that's a point you might make in the book how they were just kind of extra prepared for getting on the ground and running this very kind of energized and ultimately quite a successful campaign because they had so much practice thanks to mm. the plp yeah and also jeremy corbyn had loads of practice at tv hustings so when when it came to the first big debate with Theresa may all the mainstream media were going oh jeremy corbyn's gonna be made to look stupid Nobody in the country has done more live TV hustings than Jeremy Corbyn. He's yeah. like an expert at him yeah. because he keeps getting challenged. So yeah. Yeah. In those hustings that he did with Owen Smith, he just came across so unfazed by everything that was going against him at the time. Although, of course, it was probably taking a big like toll on him. But then you compare that with Owen Smith, who I like the amount of times I was watching the multiple debates he did with Smith. And you just see the utter contempt in Smith's eyes at Corbyn. Smith seemed so just... angry in them. He did. Yeah. <laughs> and he got angrier, didn't he? As it was yeah, becoming yeah. more clear that he was going to lose, he got angrier and angrier. And he started saying, you know, momentum's a parasite that's going <laughs> to suck out the life from <laughs> the Labour yeah. Party and leave a dead heart or whatever it was. Yeah. He kept having a go at the audience at all the debates as well. <laughs> yeah, because if they didn't like his answers, he'd have a go at them. Yeah. <laughs> They're not going to like him anymore. <laughs> it happened in like at least three consecutive debates that he, he had a pop at the audience. It's like, fucking hell, mate, you're not helping yourself. And then there was that magical one on the Victoria Darwisha on BBC. Did you remember that when they had this really horrible debate? It was kind of two hours and it was all about abuse because they didn't talk about anything substantial. It was all about kind of abuse in the Labour Party and people from Smith's side accusing Corbyn of being responsible for them being made to feel unwelcome at a Labour Party meeting and all this kind of stuff. And so it yeah. seemed like it was horrible. And then at the end, Victoria Darvish has said that she wanted everybody to stand up, the, pe the undecided people, to stand up and move to the side of the room where their candidate was. And they all moved to Jeremy Corbyn's side. Knowing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Smith was just sitting there kind of shaking his head, looking, you know, frustrated. We've divided you up. This is the section of people who said we, they wanted to come along today to see if they could make up their mind. So I'd like to ask you, if you think you have reached a conclusion and you are now going to support either Owen Smith or the incumbent Jeremy Corbyn, could I ask you to walk to the relevant sections, the Owen Smith section or the Jeremy Corbyn section right now? And I will describe this for listeners on the radio. So, uh, okay. 
people in the under those people in the undecided section have moved and swelled the ranks of the Jeremy Corbyn supporters. Oh, but was that the same one where he advocated talks with ISIS? It was, yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh and was that the same one oh. where Corbyn said he didn't know who Ant and Deck were? It was, yeah. And, and like you say, Alex, that's the kind of thing, like, it only adds to Corbyn's appeal, the fact that he's not either sitting around watching Ant and Deck shows or, B, pretending to know who they are. Exactly, exactly. And why should he know who they are? Why should anybody? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, right. Laura. Declan Donnelly is a fucking cunt, okay? Nobody can <laughs> fuck who he is. <laughs> they can is... both get fucked. They're not funny. <laughs> What show were they on? They were on a show before they got Micah. really big as presenters. Micah Grove. Oh, Basically, right. I hold them responsible for every piece of bullying I've ever got off the internet for being from Biker, so... Are you actually from Biker? I am actually from Biker, yeah. Wow. Cool. Wow. <laughs> wow. Incredible scenes. <laughs> Biker's quite a poor part of Newcastle, isn't it? Isn't it like the... It's the poorest part of Newcastle, yeah. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. But they're not. I, are they from I still Bike? Love it. I still stick. They, they are not from Biker. They're from Heaton, or at least Deck yeah. is. I don't know where Ant is from, but Deck's definitely from Heaton. Is Heaton like the local middle class coffee drinking, plus on munching, <laughs> metropolitan, <laughs> whatever, hot spot? To be spot. honest, Jack, there's not a lot of those places in Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this centre of Newcastle, but. Isn't Jesmond quite posh? Well, Jesmond is where most of the Newcastle University students live. So it's quite posh, but still in a student way. I think we got sidetracked a bit reliving Done the, the wonderful... Done the politics of Newcastle. <laughs> wonder... Yeah, that as well. But firstly, the wonderful campaign of Owen Smith, which we really <laughs> yeah. loved so much. But yeah, I... the fall and fall of Owen Smith. Yeah, <laughs> we dedicated an entire episode to it. It was that wonderful. Yeah. The, the irresistible fall of Owen Smith. But I thought that we could maybe talk about the immediate run-up to the general election when yeah. things were just looking so grim for Labour that, mm. you know, it felt almost natural that May would call this election. There's a couple of instances in here of the kind of stuff that Corbyn was having to contend with at that point. One is from just before the election was called. The other is from during the campaign itself. So once the election had been announced. So there were all these kind of moves that were so kind of blatantly to undermine the party. One such thing was, you write, that Labour did some internal polling to test the reaction of Northern voters to Rebecca Long-Bailey and Angela Rayner, which made the Sunday Times front page in February 2017. So somebody leaked that in the view of a member of the leaders' team to break the two women's confidence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this was basically sabotage that was going on. Yeah, you can't really justify that as something where, you know, you want the best for your party. What's the argument for how that's a productive thing to do? Exactly, yeah. And that polling was only available to a very small number of officials at the top of the Labour Party. So they basically kind of know who was doing that. And they were having to cooperate, they were having to coexist with these people that they knew were constantly undermining them. I, for one, think it's really, really sad that Ian McNichol has resigned and (laughs) evidence of uh, Corbyn's Stalinist clique tightening their power. So that's the kind of thing that, you know, frustratingly, you'd have to see these kind of headlines every day in the run-up to the general election. You'd think, Christ is the only way down from here. And Mm. then 
even once May had announced for general election, you still had these kind of genuinely absurd wrecking moves from senior figures within the Labour Party. So when they were selecting candidates, you write how this was quite a centralised process. Like, it was effectively mm. the NEC got to pick candidates because the decision was made that they didn't have time to give each CLP the chance to select their own. Um, mm. So there was a very centralised process headed up by the NEC with the unions getting a pretty heavy say. But some selections were pretty, i got to say, pretty confusing for a party that presumably is taking a general election seriously. For example, John Woodcock, the backbench MP, <laughs> said <laughs> that he would not vote for a Queen's speech that would make Jeremy Corbyn the Prime Minister. So he's saying there that he doesn't want Labour to form a government. But I want to be clear with you about one thing. I'm intending to seek renomination from my local Labour and cooperative parties to be their official candidate, but I will not countenance ever voting to make Jeremy Corbyn Britain's Prime Minister. I realise that Jeremy has been elected and then re-elected as the leader of my party, but my first duty is to you, my constituents. Jeremy's opposition to the Trident Renewal Programme is lifelong. Now, Tom Watson, uh, I was going to say at the time the deputy leader, still <coughs> is technically, <laughs> and Kezia Dugdale at the time the leader of Scottish Labour, personally called in to the selection meeting to vouch for John Woodcock, who had just said he didn't want Labour to form a government. Again, Alex, can you explain to me the logical rationale behind that kind of decision from people who presumably only have their party's best interest at heart? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, to be honest, I don't know why they bothered defending John Woodcock. It's, he's indefensible, you know, he's an embarrassment for yeah. So it backfired, really. They should have just let him go. But yeah, you know, the election was called John Woodcock. He didn't make a, you know, he didn't, he wasn't discreet about it. He did a Facebook video <laughs> on his own Facebook account yeah. oh, saying, I will not vote for Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister on the oh, first day of the election campaign. And actually, to be honest, it caused fury, not just from the left, obviously the left was up in arms, but I think, you know, any kind of traditional Labour loyalist would have said that that was unacceptable. But then they had an NEC meeting where this was raised and Corbyn didn't have a majority on the NEC at the time. And uh, to make sure that Corbyn didn't have a majority, Tom Watson and Kezia Dugdale reportedly phoned in in order to kind of vouch for him and make sure that he wasn't... <laughs> Oh my god. But how? Embarrassing. How how were they able to sit around and be like, actually, it's fine to say that we shouldn't form a government? (laughs) The Labour NEC meeting, like the people who are supposed to, you know, lead the party. You know, it's baffling that they were getting away with this stuff out in the open. And I found it really, really frustrating during the selection process of the general election how journalists kind of treated the idea that anyone who supports Corbyn would get selected as completely absurd. Yeah. You know, people are complaining that Katie Clark was going to get a seat. And it's like, yeah. do you really think that a party should be sending people who don't agree with its platform into Parliament <laughs> to represent it? That's like, again, I, I keep saying this stuff absurd, illogical, but it is. It's both of yeah. those things. Yeah. No, absolutely. And you have to sometimes take a step back to see how absurd it is. But there are a few candidates. I mean, Sam Terry as well was 
was one that they wanted to get in who didn't. And I don't think it's a good idea to parachute candidates in, even if they're left-wing candidates. I would have preferred yeah. if they'd all been selected. But the idea that it's outrageous that a leadership should want to have MPs who vaguely agree with it is a bit weird. It's it's like yeah. the whole it's like the momentum thing all the time. Mm. It's the presentation of momentum as sinister, and then you see there's an organisation that basically got the same politics as the leader of the party and the same politics as the majority of the members of the party. Like, why is that? Un- in what organisation would it be unusual for people to express the same politics as the leader and the majority of their fellow members? It's just like, yeah. you know, surely that's normal. But suddenly, because it's the Labour Party and it's momentum, it's all a sinister plot. Um, so, so, yeah, the, and the selections thing happened. I mean, the excuse was members can't choose their own candidates because there's no time. Jeremy Corbyn was arguing that they wanted some form of selections, probably for seats where incumbent MPs were stepping down. But he got blocked at an NEC, well, it's actually just a meeting of NEC officers where he just faced a wall of opposition and said, no, you can't do that. So that was on the first or second day of the election. So that wasn't in his hands, that kind of process. And then immediately after the general election, on the morning, the first thing apparently that he said to McNichol on the morning after the general election was, I want selections, which is why we're going through this whole process now, so that it can't be done again. Brilliant. Because, yeah, they're trying to do the next round of selections as early as possible, aren't they? So it's currently ongoing. Yeah, which actually, I mean... So far, I think it's about 50-50 between the left and the right in terms of the candidates that have been selected. So it might turn out not to have been the most, um, maybe not the, the, the wisest thing to rush yeah. into. Anyway, we'll see. I saw Akehurst gloating a couple of yeah. weeks ago about how well the anti-Corbynites within the party were doing. Like, amazing, defining yeah. yourself by opposition to your own party's leader. But but fine, yeah, that is the way <laughs> things are. I think we're pulling ahead a bit now, aren't we? We've been doing a bit better in the selections of late. Yeah, they've been getting better. In actual fact, all of that stuff was a bit overstated by Akehurst because <laughs> they're ta- he's taking... Uh, yeah, who would have thought? He's taking... Uh, <laughs> Russia! <laughs> <laughs> he's taking momentum backing as you know that's what he, all he cares about and when you actually look at it it's kind of about 50 50 like originally he was saying oh, there's only five out of 25 who have mm. been selected with momentum backing for the next election mm. in actual fact if you include the trade union left and so on people who are being selected who might not necessarily have formal momentum backing but they're still basically left yeah so it kind of it turns out about 50 50 and it seems to be getting better for the left as well so how do you think ultimately the selection process worked out in terms of the current composition of the plp there are lots of MPs who got elected who were just let through because they thought they had no chance. So like uh, Emma Dent Code in Kensington and so on. Yeah. So it wasn't so bad. And the actual NEC panels were dominated by trade unions. So you've got trade union people in who are better than, you know, people like Chris Leslie who haven't got any kind of relationship with the Labour movement whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so it could have been worse. And I think probably Len McCluskey says in the book, I interviewed Len McCluskey, he says that he thinks that the bureaucracy and the right wing of the Labour Party let the unions select the candidates they wanted because they just assumed Labour was going to get hammered, so none of them would get in. And also because they wanted to keep the unions on board after the election, after Jeremy Corbyn had been deposed, because they still need the money from trade unions. So they kind of went easy on the selections and let the unions get who they wanted. Obviously, not all trade union candidates you could consider left. I mean, there are lots in Parliament who've got trade union backing who aren't left at all. And there are lots probably elected who would be the same. 
but yeah, I mean, that's that's how it was. I think we've got about a dozen, basically. A dozen proper left-wingers. Yeah, I think that's the number you have in the book, isn't it? Yeah, but then one of them is Jared O'Malley. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he, dear. He, he's not technically a Labour MP right now, is not he? Not at the moment, no. <laughs> not technically. <laughs> no, that was, that was unfortunate. You know how Ben Bradley, the Tory MP who currently is on his knees in front of Jeremy Corbyn, <laughs> saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Ben Bradley won a seat off Labour in the North. It, Man- you know, was it, yeah. Mansfield, yeah, Mansfield's Midlands, isn't it? Oh, sorry, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. Mansfield, I think it was, yeah. But it's, so, yeah, it's, but yeah, but yeah, it's, it's a close marginal anyway. The Tories didn't expect to win it, and so naturally they like promoted him and have sort of bigged him up as this big figure in the party, which is mm. like if Corbyn immediately like just put Jared O'Mara into the shadow cabinet. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, he beat uh... Clegg. Yeah, this is the guy. <laughs> but why did nobody... In the... I mean, the thing is, you don't need to look hard at Ben Bradley to work out that you shouldn't give him any kind of response responsibility for anything (laughs) (laughs) just like constantly making a complete fool of himself and then shitting his pants in public like how many times has it been three times in about as many weeks fair play to the guy (laughs) (laughs) the thing is as well is that when he he went to a gathering of young conservatives with i believe it was pretty patel and i can't remember the other mp but they were basically talking to the young conservatives and saying you know we don't want them you know portraying us in this way and all this so you know they, they don't understand that we actually care about everyone we're not just you know and then yeah. one gaffe after another from eugenics kind of, yeah. to me he's just literally and he's the future of the conservative movement yeah. <laughs> this whole narrative they've tried to do is saying that the left are abusive and you know we need to shut down social media because Tory MPs or prospective candidates get some abusive tweets from the left it's a bit sorry a bit, they're playing with fire aren't they I mean seriously it's not going to be hard to show that the right is more abusive than the left I mean, we never do it on the left. We should do the whole victim card thing because there's so many death threats sent to Jeremy Corbyn and so on. You could just compile them and find out which ones. The trouble is nobody's a Tory party member because they haven't got any members. So it's difficult to pick precisely on the party. But they're going to keep falling foul of this stuff. Having set themselves up to a high standard, they're going to consistently fail to meet it. Yeah. I loved how some journalists in the media were trying to say that Corbyn filing a libel lawsuit against Ben Bradley was like a a scary kind of vision of what the the, the Labour Party is becoming, trying to shut down free speech like really really the best one of that was Nora Mulready the um, yeah. Labour Party member in, in Harringay who's HDV stan yeah the HDV yeah. one who's the source of all the pro HDV anti-left comments on all the HDV stories oh, yeah well, literally not, all not of all them. of them well I was going to say I was going to try and protect myself then from <laughs> any repercussions by saying not all of them but whatever um, she tweeted that Ben Bradley was being victimised by the hard left and that's what everybody else in the Labour Party feels like when they're victimised by the hard left <laughs> <laughs> You have to be to make that comparison. It's not going to help her. I I feel like a Tory right now who supports eugenics. (laughs) (laughs) As as a friend of the show, Dan Howden tweeted the other day, have they not realised yet what happens to their mentions when they tweet the phrase hard left? Oh, yeah. Let's hope they never do. But um, (laughs) I think that's actually a good segue into the media anti-Corbyn smear machine, which is something you pay close attention to in the book. I mean, in the earlier portion of the book, there's basically a whole chapter about just how much The Guardian fucked up on the initial Mm. Corbyn thing. I realised after I wrote it, that wasn't a great idea in terms of trying to get a review. (laughs) (laughs) 
was it was it uh, Gabby Hinsliff or someone who just parred you off in that review like the... yeah, she gave me one sentence or half but the thing that was frustrating about that was she said I mean it was weird because it was in the Guardian's best political books of 2016 so you think well that's good like, thank yeah. you for that but you've only included me so that you can say this book is only suitable for anybody who hasn't wondered whether the glorious revolution no what was it um only suitable for people who haven't wondered why the glorious revolution is not popular with voters or something so basically she was saying you know um he doesn't say he does, you know he's so sympathetic to corbyn he doesn't take any account of the fact that corbyn's massively unpopular in the country which is obviously a review which hasn't aged particularly well but the really frustrating yeah. thing is just next to that she says that ed balls's book was really insightful which i thought was like, <laughs> Well, last week, The Guardian disclosed that the speech had not been written by Gordon Brown at all, but by a 27-year-old choral singing researcher named Ed Ball. So there you have it, the final proof, Labour's brand new shining modernist's economic dream. But it wasn't Brown's, it was Ball's. <laughs> I think, you know, that shows that these are opinions to be taken with a pinch of salt. I don't know, she's a really good troll and she knows that. Yeah. Look at it this way, Alex. She got a better write-up from her than she gave to us. She, oh, really? she literally <laughs> compared us to the fascists that murdered Joe Cox on the streets yeah. of the constituency. So wow. that's God. one way of looking at it, I guess, you know. But of course, you know, everyone comes out of this Corbyn spy thing looking ridiculous, don't they? <laughs> that's, that's the latest take I've seen from Hinsliff. But, you know, for people who are saying baselessly and have been doing for two weeks that Corbyn is a spy. Yeah, no, no, they're ridiculous for sure. But you know who is also ridiculous? <laughs> the people saying he's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so what's the argument, though? What's the, how, how does she make that work? I, I, we... I don't fucking know, man. <laughs> I didn't read the article, I just saw the headline. <laughs> right, yeah, I mean, the Czech spy thing has been fantastic in terms of... It's this whole thing that they never seem to realise that the Corbyn movement thrives on adversity. So when they yeah. do this, it regalvanises <laughs> yeah. everybody, you know, and it solidifies the movement, and it doesn't seem to have any effect on the polls. You know, there's that poll out today which shows Labour's up a bit, and mm. they asked people if the spy thing had given them a worse opinion of Jeremy Corbyn, only 8% said it had, and they were all conservative, or mostly conservatives. And in fact, 6% yeah. it's improved their opinion of Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and, and it's really made the press look so utterly stupid because the story was obviously stupid from the start when the guy said he organized live aid or maybe it was the mandela concert can't remember you know such a big event in his life yeah. and he says john mcdonald was high level source for Russians when he was passing secrets at the time of working for Camden Borough Council. Um, <laughs> and he says that Jeremy Corbyn knew what Thatcher was having for breakfast and what she was going to wear the next day. And he said that Corbyn had really useful information on the British security services, which seemed to be a, a copy of the Sunday people. Um, <laughs> at that point, they should have thought, maybe we shouldn't invest all of our credibility in this particular one guy. But they just went for it, which is, you know, <laughs> yeah. they go for it. And uh, they've made themselves look silly. Unfortunately, I mean, the one downside to this is that there's probably somebody out there who now is planning to assassinate Jeremy Corbyn. And I'm not yeah. even being <laughs> yeah, yeah. They do kill far-right terrorists, kill Labour MPs. They kill Joe Cox. They tried to kill Rosa Cooper. Darren Osborne came to London to kill Jeremy Corbyn and Sadiq Khan. And there are loads of people out there who probably now believe Jeremy Corbyn is a communist spy. And it's their duty, as Gavin Williamson basically told them by saying that 
Corbyn's betraying them and bringing pain and misery to the British people, they think it's their duty to get rid of him. And that's yeah. uh, dangerous, anti-democratic and completely unacceptable. And in, in any normal democratic society, he'd surely be sacked. Absolutely. What I found interesting is how the anti-Corbynites have kept shifting the goalposts of, of what we're talking about, basically as the Corbyn spy story is shown to be ever more preposterous. So at first it was like, Corbyn is a spy, he has serious questions to answer. And then it was like, Corbyn may not have been a spy, but he did support the Soviet Union. <laughs> and then and then they found that EDM where he criticises Stalinism, but that bellend Robert Colville who did the 42 oh thread God. about how you know, Corbyn wanted talks with the Falklands. Talks! <laughs> and stuff like that. Uh, Robert Colville then did his new article in The Telegraph saying, actually, Corbyn didn't support the Soviet Union, really, but he did want America to lose, which is just <laughs> as bad. So they, they've basically brought it round to the fact that you know, and, and actually, I, I think that it's ill-advised to turn this into some kind of actually the Soviet Union are bad thing. Although obviously yeah. there are criticisms to be made. Clearly Corbyn was making them, but that's not enough. That's never going to be enough for the people who are criticising him on these grounds. Because it essentially comes down to if you even so much as criticise America's blood-stained foreign policy, then you are beyond the political pale for them. Yeah, I mean, you see, the, the way that the Tory politicians especially have framed it is that if you don't go along with every single British foreign policy intervention, you're a traitor. That seems to be the logic of their statements. Yeah. And the foreign policy record of the United Kingdom has been one of unremitting calamity ever since yeah. Suez, basically. So, um, <laughs> and before, there was the whole empire. That was... <laughs> <laughs> Imperialism um, right from the very start. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even back to Cromwell, you know, slaughtering the Irish, which the Irish yeah, and the yeah. British try to forget. So it is that kind. They're trying to redefine what's acceptable in political discourse as always accepting that Britain was right in every foreign policy decision it's ever taken, which is obviously completely absurd. And yeah. that's also dangerous because that just means you're going to keep repeating the same mistakes again and again and again if you have that view. Do you think yeah. that the views of various members of the Parliamentary Labour Party have fed in a significant way into this attack line of, you know, unpatriotic, terrorist sympathising, soft on national security? Because I really do think they've lent a lot of credence to this, what I call the Iranian hangmen attack line against Corbyn. Yeah. To, <laughs> to quote Graham Jones MP from when he accused Owen Jones of supporting both yeah, ISIS and the Iranian Joe. government. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this sort of, you know, Graham Jones, just a fucking shill for Saudi. And, uh, you yeah. know, the other day, just like hanging out in the United Arab Emirates, like on some presumably paid for oh, really? junket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah once he... again, tweeting bullshit at oh, Owen Jones no. from yeah. the actual House of Saudi. Wow. Yeah, literally, like location, Dubai, at the bottom of his tweet. Um, like, just this, this guy, like, he has absolutely absolutely no compunction about just taking the right-wing foreign policy stance on everything. He sees no kind of contradiction between the fact that he's a Labour MP and he is completely, him and Woodcock, with mm. a, a completely day-by-day day undermining the only message that Labour are going to be able to put forth on foreign policy with a guy like Jeremy Corbyn as their leader. I think it's remarkable how quickly, as you write in the book, Alex, the Labour left were able to establish a kind of hegemony in terms of domestic policy. Effectively, mm. they were able to get out there at the start of Corbyn's leadership and say, look, our economic consensus is 
clearly broken. And Labour MPs just sort of went like, yeah, all right, I guess, suppose so. <laughs> There's not been this kind of acceptance of Corbyn's foreign policy views. And I, yeah, I was wondering why you think this is, and if you think that these internal divisions in Labour over foreign policy do feed into the kind of Corbyn is a terrorist narrative that leads people like Darren Osborne to want to murder Labour politicians. Yeah, I think it's really strange the way I find it kind of strange the way that foreign policy for the right of the Labour Party is the kind of totemic issue that it's it's kind of like religious. It's not even political, particularly. And I think it does go back to the Cold War. And it goes back to the idea that you had to kind of prove yourself to be an Atlanticist. And this was true in the Mm -hmm. trade unions as well as in the Labour Party. I suppose if you're always being accused of being, you know, a traitor, you kind of overcompensate maybe. That then has several branches. So because of that kind of pro-US, pro-NATO, Atlanticist view, then they're by default almost pro-Israel. And that's now a totemic issue for the Labour right, where it doesn't seem to have much. I mean, at the current moment, the, the Israeli government, you know, is completely right wing government that's got no interest whatsoever in a two state solution. Absolutely everybody can see that. But the Labour right still cling to it, still cling yeah. to the idea that the Israeli government's going to actually do anything that's useful in terms of a two state solution. So the divisions there are much deeper than they are on domestic policy and economic policy. And also, the other reason why domestic and economic policy has been much easier for Corbyn to establish his own agenda is because the right's actually split on that. Because the old right, the Tom Watson type part of the Labour right, they're basically social democrats. They never believed in using private companies in the NHS and so on. You know, there were lots yeah. of elements of Blair's program that they disagreed with. And then the Blairite bit, the Chris Leslie types and the, <laughs> yeah. the proper neoliberals, they're basically they're off the scale. They just believe everything that neoliberal propaganda says. And so they can't unify. You see that over the single market and stuff. That's why they couldn't mm. get it together at conference over the single market, because basically the social democratic part wants to restrict immigration and the Blairite part, in theory at least, is more concerned about open markets. So I think that that's one of the reasons why it's been possible to establish that hegemony on domestic economic policy. And just the fact that the whole membership is living through Britain's economic non-recovery from the crash. And that message is just unstoppable, basically. You know, they were so out of kilter in 2015 when Jeremy Corbyn ran. This is why they got crushed. They were so out of kilter with the lived realities of the membership. I mean, the really strange thing is they didn't realise it during the 2015 leadership race. They were still clinging to all the old orthodoxies. But as soon as that had finished, nobody's even tried, I don't think, except Chris Leslie. Nobody's even tried to um, to argue for that stuff anymore. I um, almost admire Chris Leslie for being just a true ideologue. Like, yeah. th- there is nothing left-wing about him, and there is no way he can do the thing that other right-wing Labour MPs do of acting left-wing now. It's not within his capabilities. Yeah. He, he can use the word austerity now, which he never did when he was Shadow Chancellor. He can say, if you want to stay in the single market, then you're the real anti-austerity person. But yeah. that's as far as Leslie can go, I think, appropriating that one bit of rhetoric for his sort of neoliberal agenda. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Leslie's already sort of pushed himself so far and exposed himself as as right wing as he is that he's never exactly going to be able to claw back on the Jess Phillips line of, yeah, I'm a socialist, just a different kind of socialist yeah (laughs) i love like the credulousness of certain media you know i was reading an interview with jess phillips where they're like unlike many of corbyn's internal critics phillips is from the left of the party (laughs) and it's like in what way like she's, she's got absolutely no factional connections to the labor left in what is essentially the most factional party this side of zanu pf (laughs) <laughs> what was the policy she was asked what was the one policy she 
you'd want put into legislation above any others. Was it something like more police on the streets? Where? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was it more police on the streets? Was it? Like, I think so. Really? Yeah. Like that? The, the, yeah. That's the one issue that needs to be addressed right now. More police on the streets, not the economy <laughs> or the NHS or housing or homelessness. No, just more police on the streets. That's <laughs> that's the true socialism of Labour. <laughs> on Alex's point that he made about why it's been easier for Corbyn to establish a domestic policy hegemony mm-hmm. within the Labour Party than it is on the foreign policy front. I almost think, yes, you're absolutely right that people from their lived experiences can see that the economic consensus is not working. But I mean, I think it's more obvious than most Labour MPs think that the foreign policy consensus isn't working either. Um, Like It's really baffling that Ian Austin thought that heckling Corbyn during his speech about how the Iraq war was wrong was remotely a good look. Mm. I know we talked about this a couple of episodes, though, but that is just as disconnected from actual public opinion as what they accuse Corbyn of being. There isn't this majority in the country for the Iraq war war or for the intervention in Libya, most Mm. people are actually maybe not fully-fledged anti-imperialists like Corbyn, but they're definitely sceptical of British foreign policy and don't automatically assume we're in the right, and don't automatically assume things like Trident are necessary. Like, surely polls on Trident have really, really varied over time, as in fact does expert opinion on it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point, and certainly there's no foreign policy consensus in the public, and actually I mean, you know, if you're talking about Ian Austin's probably a kind of extreme case because you have to you have to consider the possibility that he's actually as imbecilic as he appears. You know, (laughs) they're constantly kind of undermined by themselves. You know, they just get too excited and they tell a journalist something and, you know, that riles up the left or they stand up in Parliament and tell Corbyn to sit down and that riles up the left. So they, they don't have any kind of consistency on that. But in the general election, one of the key moments that I just just like I'll describe I did write this, this book, which we've stopped talking about. But um, in the... <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to bring it back <laughs> to the book in a minute. Um, in the, one of the things in the book which I talk about is that moment after the Manchester terror attack, when the Tories wanted to suspend campaigning for six days, yeah, or yeah. and Labour wanted to restart. And then they made that decision that Jeremy Corbyn was going to do this big speech on terror and security. And I quote Carrie Murphy saying that they were fucking terrified, you know, in the leader's office um, on the night before she had Labour MPs ringing up saying, if he says this, we're fucked. Literally, like that was the quote. They couldn't find a Labour MP to introduce him for the speech. And when it was... (laughs) That's fucked. That's so fucked. Not even anyone on the left. No, you would do it. They ended up getting something from the House of Lords. Um, when they wow. um, pre-briefed the speech, the big headline on the Telegraph was Corbyn blames UK for Manchester attack or something along those lines anyway. Yeah, yeah. And the whole kind of journalistic clique thought, oh, this is the moment, you know, he's fallen into the trap. He, he can't help himself. He's going to come out with his absurd and unpopular and anti-patriotic views on foreign policy and we're going to nail him for this. And so they were all kind of mm-hmm. getting ready. And then Corbyn made the speech, which was actually much more reasonable than people expected. You know, he was just saying that although jihadists are responsible for their own actions and there's no excuse for it, if you destabilise a whole region and create circumstances where jihadism can grow, then you're not doing yourself any favours, basically. That was the message of his speech. And he made the speech and then there was an instant YouGov poll afterwards. And I can't remember the percentage, but I think it was like 54% agreed with Jeremy Corbyn's view that British involvement in foreign wars was at least in part a reason for the terror attack. And I think much less than that disagreed. You know, it was a big majority. It was an overall majority. And I think also a majority of Tory voters thought the same thing. So we will also change what we do abroad. Many experts, including professionals in our intelligence and security services, have pointed out 
the connections between wars that we've been involved in or supported and fought in in other countries such as Libya and terrorism here at home. That assessment in no way reduces the guilt of those who attack our children. Those terrorists will forever be reviled and implacably held to account for their actions. And then at that point, it's just kind of like, this is what actually public opinion is. And the entire press, who was supposed to be part of public opinion, the entire press had said that this was an opinion that was beyond the pale, that was completely unacceptable. Mm. And suddenly you find that a majority, an absolute majority of the public agrees with Jeremy Corbyn on foreign policy. And that was, I think, a massive shock to them. And I think it was a big moment in the election because that's when people thought that the wheels were going to fall off the Labour campaign. But in actual fact, it just went from strength to strength. I remember that panic, the, Mm. the panic before he made that speech and we saw the public response to it. I remember, like everyone around me was like shitting themselves like this is it the Tories have won it now because he's gonna divorce himself from wider public opinion by coming out and spouting like anti-imperialist views that are just apparently too far left for the British public or whatever I remember that sort of like fear of like oh god it's so unlucky but like I guess this is how we're gonna lose it and that was fucking terrifying and it was entirely created and fanned by the press and the Labour right and everything like that but it was fucking scary. Yeah. Well, it's inter- I thought it was interesting that they were scared. In the leaders, yeah, yeah. they were scared. And they were thinking, shit, like Carrie Murphy says, are we going to let the left down? That's what they were thinking. Yeah, um, exactly. And it was Seamus Milne who took the decision that they were going to do it. That's yeah. very Seamus Milne. Yeah. From, from, <laughs> from the man who uh, published an article by Bin Laden in the Guardian's comment is free section. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love Seamus Milne. I was reading his review of Peter Mandelson's book from if, if 1994. Seamus, if Seamus Milne listens to this he's going to think oh this is great this is great and you're going to mention the bin laden thing he's going to think no <laughs> <laughs> but we're saying that as a, as Mate, a positive we love thing. the bin laden thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah like that was rad in my opinion but um no i, I just reading seamus on new labor him writing in 1996 and he already saw yes. what those fuckers were up to. Like, yeah. he, he had their number. Um, I think it's remarkable. And it shows how it really is just a colossal misjudgment on the part of our media and political class and fully indicative of their insidious groupthink that mm. they just kind of assume that there is this foreign policy consensus in the country in yeah. a post-Iraq war context and that 90% of the country consists of gammon. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just... Proper, we're all proper warmongers. Like. Yeah, it's just not the case. And again, I think another pivotal moment of the election that Alex talks about in the book is when Corbyn did that Q&A on, was it the BBC one? And it's, it's where that, yeah, it's where the famous meme comes from of the nine ham-faced nuke men. Yeah, yeah. All asking him in a row. Like, it just preposterous it's just no way to book an audience any kind of audience where you can have nine right-wing old men unrepresentative of the population at large say the same angry shit one after another is not a well-chosen politically balanced audience but anyway nine of them got up and had a go at corbyn about how he wouldn't press the nuclear button and you know it was completely indicative of their like myopic racist views effectively they were saying stuff like 
what if some idiot in Iran presses the button? It's like, well, no, I'm sure it would be a complex decision made by a, a whole structure of Iranian government if that was the case. Not, they don't just have their red button in the middle of a square in Tehran yeah. and the fucking village yeah. idiot can just like <laughs> wobble up to it and go, that's a, a strange take on Iranian society. But anyway, sorry. But no, they, they also weirdly reflective of our society because <laughs> yeah. who's doing our foreign policy at the minute? Yeah. Some <laughs> idiot, yeah. Well, Some village like, um, idiot. But Blair then did Iraq as... pretty much by himself, didn't he? I mean, if you're an Iraqi, you could say that on Iraqi question time, and you'd be absolutely accurate. You know what? If some <laughs> idiot in Britain becomes a sponsor. <laughs> But then this one young woman said something like, I don't know why all of you are so keen to have us all killed in a nuclear yeah. apocalypse. We would not use it as first use, and if we did use it, millions are going to die. You have to think this thing through. <laughs> I'll decide on the all circumstances at right. right. a time. All right, now, yeah. you said that you would, you, kind of... would you use yeah. it as second use? Or would you allow North Korea or some idiot in Iran to bomb us and then say, oh, we better start talking? You'd be too late. No, of You're course not. You're going to have not. to do it first, mate. No, of course, of course not. Of course I would not do that. Well, well, you would what? allow them to do it? Of course not. Because well, that, is, that is why I made the point a short time ago about the need for President Obama's agreement with Iran to be upheld. It's quite important, actually and also to promote disarmament in Korea. That is difficult, I appreciate. Anybody, you, the woman there, yes. Let's just stick with this, then we'll move on. Yes. Yeah, um, I actually have a question regarding human rights, but... All right, just, yes, use but, your question. Just before, I, I don't understand why everyone in this room seems so keen on killing millions of people with a <laughs> And that, as I think, unless I've got it mixed up in my head with the second edition of Richard Seymour's book. Um, I'm pretty sure that you say in the book, Alex, but that kind of released the tension immediately yeah. in the room, that all the people who just watched these nine angry right-wing men in a row were just were like, oh my god, I'm, I'm not completely, you know, detached from reality. Like, there are actually other people who think this stuff and find this stuff ridiculous. Mm. Yeah, and because if you remember, just before that, somebody had said... I think we should have tried and in this day and age, as if like, <laughs> as if it's much more dangerous now than it was when the Soviet Union was. Anyway, um, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't actually a question, but Dimbleby said to Jeremy Corbyn, "Do you want to answer that?" And Jeremy Corbyn was just—he just got fed up by now. And he just said no. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was fucking sick. I love that. And oh, it kind man. of looked like you know you think, oh god, is this just terrible? This is going to go all wrong. And then Dimbleby says, "Let's just stick with this." You know, they've been on it for like nine minutes or something. Let's just stick with this. Let's take another question there. And he pointed at the woman who said, I actually want to ask a question about human rights. And if you watch the video carefully, you can see Jeremy Corbyn, who's kind of slouched by this time, or not slouched, but he's standing up with his shoulders forward defensively. She says, I want yeah. to ask a question about human rights. And he stands up straight and you can tell he must be thinking... <laughs> Thank God for this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then like, oh, says, I love human rights. <laughs> yeah. Before I ask my question, I don't understand why everyone in this room is so keen on killing millions of people with a nuclear bomb. And the great thing about it was that half the room, not just TV audience, but half the room massively applauded and cheered. So then, yeah. like literally half that room was sitting there thinking, this is awful, this is absurd. And just her saying that completely changed what viewers took away from the show because, you know, up to then it looked like, you know, it was in a real pickle. And then suddenly you think, oh, yeah, that's good. 
just the release of emotions completely transforms the memory that you have, which is all that really matters after one of those things. And then the next day, the Daily Mail headline was Corbyn's nuclear meltdown. But the Mail on Sunday had done a poll from Servation, which found that more people would have voted Labour because of Jeremy Corbyn's performance of people who watched the show. I think 36% were more likely to vote Labour, 24% less likely. And with Theresa May, it was the reverse. 36% were less likely. 24% more likely. I will just go back to my contention, but I I just don't think as many people are as keen on nuclear apocalypse as the commentariat would have you think. It doesn't sound like it's much fun, does it? No. I prefer, I don't want my face melted, and I prefer friends and family not to have melted faces too. Yeah. And pets, you know, I don't want my pets melted. Mm. Yeah, nobody wants a melted dog, all right? I think a lot of right-wing Labour MPs and centrist journalists and people who are not just pro-Trident, but kind of performatively pro-Trident in this sort of macho, dick-waving kind of posturing way. (laughs) Owen Smith, yeah, yeah, there you go. Waving all 29 inches about. Like... (laughs) I, I really do think that they kind of have this vision of the working class, which is of the white working, the purple working class, the gammon yeah. working class, the where they think class. that they just don't realise how dangerous nuclear weapons are. And <laughs> that, that there's yeah. this majority in the country who think it would just be fine if you nuked Russia and there wouldn't be any kind of like side effects. <laughs> do you think they understand the concept of mutually assured destruction, basically, is what you think? <laughs> Which I don't think they do, no. Yeah, exactly. It makes so little sense that the political class would think that we're also ready for nuclear holocaust, like complete destruction, when we never even managed to reach that kind of consensus around the Iraq war. Yeah. Like, you know, normal war without nuclear weapons, we didn't even really go for that, so why would we go for the face melting? (laughs) Like, (laughs) we aren't as war hungry as you are. (laughs) Yeah, like, if Corbyn's foreign policy positions make him un palatable to the public why is the least popular politician in the country tony blair yeah exactly absolutely well there was a really interesting article by andrew murray from unite who was brought in to run the labor election campaign and he wrote afterwards because you know after the election labor didn't do quite as well especially in the northeast and midlands in traditional heartland areas as it had done elsewhere Although he did really well in Wales, which is also a working class heartland area, which no one ever mentions. Mm-hmm. And he yeah. didn't do too badly in the northwest either. But loads of MPs came out, not loads, but some Blairite MPs came out and said, we've lost touch with the working class in Chris Leslie. Yeah. <laughs> Phil Wilson, people like that. And it's because we're perceived as soft on security. You know, that was the thing. We need to be more patriotic and more and, and better on security if we want to win back these working class communities. Well, mm. if you actually look at the data, as Andrew Murray does, Labour in all of those communities, even where Labour did slightly less well than everywhere else, Labour's mm. vote went up under Corbyn. They won more votes under Corbyn than they had done under Miliband and Brown and even the end of Blair. So that doesn't make sense. When they lost those votes, those you know famous five million votes in working class communities, that was from 97 to the end of the new Labour period. When... Nobody was going to say we're losing these because we're not tough enough on security and we're going around the world invading everywhere. So just logically, you know, there's no sense to it at all. If working class people in those areas were motivated by patriotism and security, then Labour's vote would have got bigger under Blair or would have stayed yeah. high under Blair. It wouldn't have mm. sunk under Blair and it wouldn't be rebuilding under Corbyn. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. I wanted to ask you about the team behind Corbyn's campaign. Like, 
like mm. who was an important figure both in Corbyn's team and within the parliamentary Labour Party, the MPs who basically were considered to be trusted campaigners by the leader's office. Well, there was a meeting they had every Sunday in the general election campaign where they would kind of get their strategy together. And it was John McDonnell, well, Jeremy Corbyn usually wasn't there. You'd have Andrew Gwynne and Ian Lavery, who were the two election coordinators mm. who were trusted. And you'd have Seamus Milne, Carrie Murphy, Andrew Fisher. Those are the three executive directors of the Labour Party on the leader's side and then I think a few other people but basically there was a kind of core team who were doing all that stuff and then you had the media people you know Emily Thornberry and Barry Gardner being sent out to do media stuff and they were apparently exhausted because yeah. other people weren't sharing the load yeah no but they did a great job so that was the kind of core group from the leader's side and then you had in South Side in Labour Party HQ Patrick Hennigan was the election I can't remember his official title but basically the kind of election guy and Ian McNichol and so on but they had a completely different conception so what you had throughout the campaign was this kind of civil war going on behind the scenes where the leaders office people and uh, two election coordinators were trying to do this what they call transformative strategy of trying to mobilise groups like plain people and young people and non-voters and so on and post-industrial communities and so on and then on the other side of it you had Labour HQ which said no that's going to make any difference you can't move the polls by more than two or three percent we just have to do a defensive campaign to try and salvage what we can from our parliamentary party so we're going to send extra resources to Angela Eagle to all of the Yvette Cooper Tom Watson yeah all of the people that you'd expect and just hope to kind of cling on that battle raged throughout the election campaign and even as the polls turned they didn't believe it in fact Labour's own polling company private polling company BMG was the most inaccurate and had Labour lowest <laughs> of all of them so hopefully so they... we'll get someone better next time <laughs> Yeah. Um, was that a Southside decision? To, to uh, it probably was. But I mean, it's probably just coincidence that they were the most wrong, I guess. But <laughs> there was this... Um, Melt poles. <laughs> yeah. But one of the things I've got in the book is a list that was leaked to me, which shows where Labour HQ was sending those resources. And it's just remarkable. This was when it was quite a long way into the election when they were worried about UKIP because they thought UKIP vote was collapsing. All those votes were going to go to the Tories and this was going to wipe out a whole bunch of Labour MPs, especially where UKIP didn't stand a candidate because then there was nobody for those people to vote for. And and so they drew up this list where they ranked Labour MPs according to how safe their constituency was. And they earmarked some of them for extra social media help and extra direct mailings. And if you go from the top, it's Liverpool Walton, the safest Labour seat. And then you go down, number 16 is Angela Eagle. She's got a, a majority of 16,000. She's got a UKIP candidate standing, so she doesn't have to worry about all of UKIP's vote going to the Tories. Yeah. UKIP is only 1,000 yeah. votes. She's in no threat at all. And she gets all three kinds of extra help. And her constituency is marked as marginal. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then there's like another 12 who don't get any help or something like that below her before you get the next one and then the Dan next Jarvis. one Dan Jarvis is the next <laughs> And so it's just amazing to look at this list. And of course, you go down and you get seats, for example, that Labour actually lost. Labour only lost five seats. And at least two mm. of those weren't given full help. They were just considered uh, keep watching eye on them. You know, you're giving yeah. money to Andrew Eagle, but you're not giving money to these people who are going to lose their seats. Yeah. So, I remember I looked into those seats, though, and I got to say, like, the MPs we lost. Obviously, losing any Labour seat is a tragedy, but for particular individuals, in those seats you know i won't be crying too many tears over them i don't think yeah which you which i think is interesting in itself because if they had been left wing you'd have been able to say you know they were denied money because they were singled out for political punishment but i don't think that's true because they were generally right wing mps or yeah. mps but i think it's still interesting because it shows that what was happening was that they were just diverting money to probably people that they knew People yeah. that said were going to be significant after the election, I guess. Big I mean, names. Yeah, big names. This is just speculation. Yeah. 
And then in Sunderland, I use the example of Sunderland in two constituencies next to each other in Sunderland, one represented by Sharon Houghton or Houghton, something like that, who um, was in the shadow cabinet, resigned in the coup, but then came back into the shadow or she's a shadow minister. And the other one's Bridget Phillipson, who's one of the Blairites who attacked Jeremy Corbyn in that vicious meeting during the coup. And their seats are identical, same majority, same UKIP vote, same demographics. Everything about their seats is basically identical. They're both first elected in 2010. But Bridget Phillipson got extra resources and in the other seat, Sharon Houghton didn't get extra resources. And so you think, what could be the possible justification for that? And I, I still don't, I can't see one. So, yeah, yeah. So, so resources were just being spread around based on the decisions of Labour HQ, basically, on who they wanted to give stuff to. And there were lots of people like in the North West, for example, lots of stuff was being sent to Alison McGovern, who did look as if she was under threat at one point, but not being sent to the other marginals around and about, which were actually Labour won them all anyway. And in London, similar stuff was happening. You know, Battersea didn't get much, but Tooting got loads. And all over the place, this was happening. So in the end, I quote Len McCluskey saying, if Ian McNichol had been seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, then perhaps Jeremy Corbyn would be in, or he says Jeremy Corbyn would be in number 10 right now. I quote somebody else from the leader's office who says that they're furious because they just needed different decisions made in 12 seats and the Tories wouldn't have been able to form a government. So these had big consequences and people should be probably, you know, you'd have thought there would be some kind of big inquest, but obviously it's a political process instead of a scientific exercise. So yeah, yeah. it's gradually happening anyway. Patrick Hannigan, who coordinated the election stuff for HQ, he resigned. Now McNichols resigned. So yeah. gradually this is being remedied. <laughs> How out of date was the Labour HQ's electoral strategy? Because I'm guessing the leader's office had to largely, oh, I think you actually write about it, but how they largely had to have a lot of their own operations going by themselves while Labour HQ had their own strategy to go about it. How out of date was their election campaigning strategies going into that for actual Labour HQ? Well, basically, Labour HQ was just running a campaign based on traditional wisdom, what they would normally do, what they would have done under Ed Miliband, for example. Just a traditional campaign, traditional allocation of resources, except for those those instances where it was being sent to allies taking all of the election rules as gospel that you can't move the polls and so on there's no point in trying to get non-voters to register because they're, they're non-voters because they don't vote and that was basically their conception whereas the leader's office had learned from the two leadership campaigns of jeremy corbyn that there was this constituency out there and also they just had a movement conception and i think that's one of the things that really happened and that doesn't you never get it analyzed by mainstream journalists but what happened was a movement developed and had a snowball effect and it just got bigger and bigger during the election you know you got people who were actually excited about voting Labour because they wanted to vote for Jeremy Corbyn and so they told their friends and so on and so forth. Generating that kind of excitement is something you can do if you've got an anti-establishment message and you've got a candidate that people can believe in and you're doing that kind of alternative strategy. But that was completely alien to Labour HQ who just wanted to run a traditional Labour campaign and just hope to limit the damage. So I think that that's one... You know, that's basically the core of it. That's why that happened. It's because, I mean, bluntly, it's because Labour HQ was more concerned about limiting the damage than winning, whereas the leaders office had to win or they had to do better than expected, at least, in order just to survive, because otherwise there would be a coup against Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. So you had that different conception. But then there's also questions about... I mean, a bit boring, but, you know, the kind of technical stuff about how Labour runs its canvassing operations. Labour goes out and canvasses people who have previously expressed an interest in voting Labour. And so it's not picking up new people. So on Get Out Vote Day on June 8th, you had people going around with sheets of people who've expressed an interest in voting Labour. That's fine. Get them all out. That's really important work. But then when the result came in, it was such a shock to a lot of people because there was also a whole group of people who hadn't had any contact from the Labour Party at all, but had just been inspired by Jeremy Corbyn's message. And they went completely independently to the polling station 
and cast their vote. So yeah, so that whole canvassing system is a bit, it's probably a lot of that was because it was a snap election. So there was no time to expand it. But basically, it was just going back to the same people. So it was impossible to predict that Labour was going to do better than under Miliband, because you're just asking the same people as who voted Miliband, basically. Something that I think is quite interesting is that going back to personnel, none of Corbyn's main spokesmen in the media, spokespeople, I suppose, sorry, I sound a bit Justin Trudeau, but it's worth saying they weren't, they weren't all men. None of them were from the left of the Labour Party, really. So you have Emily Thornberry is from the soft left. Mm -hmm. Barry Gardiner, I'm still confused about what his actual politics are, <laughs> yeah. uh, but he's not, not from the factional left. I'd say actually, for me, because his role in the Corbyn project goes beyond merely being a spokesman, I find Andrew Gwynne to be a very interesting figure, because mm -hmm. he's a sort of Labour-first right-winger who's nonetheless seemingly become one of Corbyn's principal allies mm -hmm. uh, yeah. since 2016. And so I'm curious as to how all these working relationships came about and how all these decisions were made, and what do you think that says about both the strengths of these individuals and the weaknesses of the parliamentary left? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. The parliamentary left is so weak in terms of numbers that there's no alternative but to reach out and get these other people. But, I mean, it's a cliche, the broad church thing, but you do have to <laughs> also bring people with you, you know, if you're in a, part, a situation like Jeremy Corbyn's in. And people like Andrew Gwynne and John Ashworth and others who hail from the Labour First part of the party are patently not as stupid as some of their colleagues and they've seen, <laughs> um, they've seen which way the party's going and the leader's office they really like Andrew Gwynn for example he was brought in when John Trickett used to be the election coordinator mm. and he sort of stopped doing that role not so long before the election and instead of replacing him with one person they replaced him with two they replaced him with Ian Lavery former president of the National Union of Mine Workers who yeah. his job was yeah. basically to go and fight the machine in, in Labour HQ yeah. yeah he is on the left isn't he yeah yeah because he's completely solid and Andrew Gwynn came in and he's not from you know he's not a Corbynist or he's not part of the Corbyn project to begin with but they reckon that he kind of embraced the project and came in to basically oversee the campaign and they're, they're kind of full of praise for him and you know it is possible for people to not necessarily have exactly the same politics as Jeremy Corbyn but just to appreciate that we're living through historical circumstances that are demanded something different and this mm. is the way that's going to work at the moment that would seem to be quite rational I mean it's amazing that more Labour MPs haven't come to the same conclusion under their own <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I suppose as you were saying people like Gwynne and Ashworth don't actually disagree with much of the domestic agenda or well frankly yeah. in the manifesto they won't even disagree with that much of the foreign policy agenda yeah. because it was not Jeremy Corbyn foreign policy in that manifesto yeah. as as good as it was as a document Thanks. so <laughs> yeah no, obviously on immigration i do have problems with that document yeah it, it wasn't perfect but it shows corbyn isn't running labor as this sort of project in which he's pushing this authoritarian left perspective where everything yeah. in, in the manifesto is just totally right on and we can all talk about it delightfully on twitter mm. unfortunately that's not the case but he he has actually made this effort and has succeeded in generating certain areas of consensus within Labour and as you say Alex bringing colleagues who do have things to contribute to the project on board. Mm. Mm. I mean I was asked about this I did Sky News earlier this week which is quite a surprise they wanted to interview me about the book Adam Bolton was interviewing and his last question was well Jeremy Corbyn's not inclusive is he he's not very inclusive just look at the Labour Party and I said well you know he did try you know he brought in yeah, his first shadow cabinet he brought in Blairites and all sorts and then they launched a coup against him and expelled themselves. So what can yeah. I do? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So 
the election as a foregone conclusion. So I know we quite often spend quite a lot of time in real politics gloating about how our political enemies are always <laughs> wrong. But to be honest, they should stop being so fucking wrong about everything <laughs> then if they got a problem with that. So you quote Jonathan Friedland saying in The Guardian yeah. that Theresa May's gamble to call the general election was about the surest bet any politician could ever place. Yeah. So how much of an amazing turnaround do you think it was that Labour were able to add 10 points to their polls and take away the Conservatives' majority and give Corbynism a new lease of life after what you describe as nearly two years of ridicule and distortion by the vast bulk of the media? Well, I mean, it's never been done before. It's completely unprecedented. They went up in the polls between 11 and 16 points during the seven weeks of the election campaign. And Jonathan Friedland was just expressing the view of all of the commentary. It was just completely universal, I think. Apart from actually Rachel Shabby and Paul Mason. And uh, yeah, I think that's, I can't really think of anybody else. Basically, every person with a column in the newspaper said the same thing. And I quote a Polly Toynbee article from when um, the election was called, from the day May called the election, and Jeremy Corbyn welcomed it or said, we welcome the chance. Yeah. And she says, could there ever be a more calamitous politician than Jeremy Corbyn whose every judgment about everything is wrong? He's wrong, wrong and wrong yeah. again. <laughs> and you, you just have to go back and read that article by Polly Tomby. And I went through it and I wanted to say every sentence was wrong, but there are actually like a couple of sentences which weren't wrong. But basically, apart from <laughs> these couple of sentences, every sentence in her article is wrong. You know, she says there's going to be a Lib Dem revival. She says nobody's interested in policies. <laughs> It's just going to be about Brexit. <laughs> just the whole thing is completely wrong. Um, Do you remember when the Tories put out their manifesto and you had Matthew Dancona and Jane Merrick writing articles about what great politics it was <laughs> and how it was going to instantly connect with the public, even though policies don't matter or anything? Yeah, absolutely. And there was that one a couple of days before the Tory manifesto. One of the policies they briefed in advance was that workers can have a year off to care for a relative that's sick. Hmm. unpaid and, <laughs> yeah. and, and this is like so with no good. carers allowance and they all wrote oh what a wonderful audacious attempt this is to put tanks on Labour's lawn they're appealing to work who <laughs> the hell has to go unpaid for a year I mean what? seriously <laughs> Unbelievable. So yeah, I mean, it's just that's one of the most satisfying things. I mean, I think we can sometimes I think we can come across as gloating a bit too much. Like after the, yeah. the immediate aftermath after of the election, it seemed yeah. like everybody was. But it's so tempting because of the fact that they've been haranguing us on the left for nearly two years in the most mm. contemptuous way they can, and not only saying we think your judgment's wrong, but saying your judgment's wrong, and you're all horrible people, and you're dangerous yeah. people, and you're um, mentally ill. People. Yeah, you're mentally ill. You're hurting the people you you claim to care about. You know, yeah. it, it was. Yeah. The most most venomous attacks they could possibly mount against the entire left, just basically treating anybody who had a political opinion that wasn't within their consensus as illegitimate and somebody who should yeah. just like get back in their place. And then yeah. it turns out that everything they were saying was wrong. <laughs> and I just think it's, beautiful. it's so exactly it's so perfect. It's so beautiful. Remember the three pretexts that they used to use about Jeremy Corbyn that he was not a leader. Well, you can't really say that if he's you know inspired millions of new people to vote. They were. Yeah. Yeah. There were people say Labour gained 3.4 million votes or whatever it is compared to Ed Miliband. But in actual fact, it gained 5 million votes because a certain portion of Miliband's vote didn't vote again for Labour. So the number yeah. that actually added to Labour's vote was 5 million. 2 million of those were new voters. 1.5 million of those were people who hadn't voted in 2015 and the other half a million people who hadn't been eligible. So it's like 18 year olds or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, they say you can't win new voters. Well, 2 million of them. They say you can't mobilise the young. Well, they mobilise the young. You know, every single kind of pre 
preconception was wrong. The second pretext they used against Jeremy Corbyn was that he was incompetent. Well, you can't really say that when he's run rings around the Tory operation. So all yeah. of these things that they harangued Jeremy Corbyn with and harangued his supporters with just fell away at 10pm on the 8th of June. And it's just you know, one of those moments that's going to, I'm sure it's going to live in the memory of everybody who was involved in that movement. Yeah, I think that's why so many of the attacks on Corbyn have just disintegrated into this sort of indignant screech of he's a communist spy or he's soft on radical Islam or something. They can't kind of cloak this instinctive reactionary objection to him in kind of this reasoned moderate sort of language anymore. I listened to a Guardian podcast from 2015 the other day which had, I listened because it had Seamus Milne on and I wanted to remind myself what he was like as a journalist (laughs) which is very very good by the way but alongside Seamus Milne you had Raphael Baer and Polly Toynbee and Toynbee was doing this great thing of sort of agreeing with Milne on policy she'd be like yes i agree with that seamus absolutely but yeah and then she'd she'd say something like in fact this was the main point made in this episode of the guardian podcast by both toynbee and bear which was that by saying which i hadn't even remembered that he did very early in his leadership in 2015 that he would not press the red button and drop a nuclear bomb on people that corbyn had ruled himself out of office Mm. and again it's this thing of like just assuming that a all these conclusions are completely foregone that the population consists 90% of gammon, etc, etc, etc. And I thought it was just a remarkable display of the firmness of these political assumptions. Yeah, I, mean, I remember Tyndy wrote an article in the 2015 leadership campaign, which I quote in the book, where she says, free to dream, I'd be to the left of Jeremy Corbyn. This is very Really? But it's best not to say so in public. That's basically the, the argument she puts forward. She's like, I would, I would abolish <laughs> private schools, I'd abolish the monarchy, blah, blah, blah. But I'm not going to say that because, you know, you wouldn't be able Bring to in the Guardian. Yeah. <laughs> it's you know, Polly Toynbee could maybe use her enormous platform as one of the UK's foremost pundits on the liberal left to, you know, maybe advocate these ideas that she apparently believes in. Yeah, I mean, that's a wonderful thing about the Corbyn phenomenon. And that's the great thing about the 2017 general election result is that Polly Toynbee's opinion sounded to a lot of people sounded fairly reasonable. Like, you know, that was mm. the whole basis of New Labour. You might want to be left wing but you just have to do what's going to win an election and they always came back to the spectre of 1983 that if you go into an election with a vaguely left wing platform you're going to get crushed like Michael Foote. The albatross as you Yeah the albatross yeah mm-hmm. and then you get the 2017 election 40% of the vote this massive vote in terms of the number of votes and that's basically destroyed the albatross that was around the necks of the left that you yeah. just can't win popular support on a left wing programme nobody can say that anymore that's the third pretext that I never got to Jeremy Corbyn was saying he's unelectable well you can't say that yeah. anymore mm. that was so firmly ingrained in my head for so long that I thought you'd actually said it there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can just hear it distantly in the background unelectable <laughs> wherever I go even today but you're absolutely right yeah that he's destroyed those sets of political assumptions which means that people who are opposed to Corbyn on very, very reactionary grounds have to actually come out and say it. Yeah. So, you know, you, you have fine. Tony Blair. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, Corbyn could win, but I just don't agree with any of his yeah. hard-left economic policies. I personally think it's a surer route to power to fight it from the centre, but I'm being open with you in saying that I accept now what, if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have dismissed as impossible... Mm 
I accept as possible. It's, you, you, you have to say in today's world now, there's been so many political upsets, it's possible that Jeremy Corbyn could become Prime Minister and Labour could win on that programme. So in that sense, I am changing my position. I'm just not changing my position as to the wisdom, mm. especially at the same time as you're delivering Brexit, of delivering what is, a, frankly, an unreconstructed far-left programme. I mean, the country would not be in good shape if we did those two things at once. Yes. And like Blair calling the 2017 manifesto an unreconstructed far-left programme <laughs> was such a telling indication of how far Blair has departed from any recognisably left-wing thought because there was nothing far left about that programme. Yeah, it was whatsoever. straight up social democracy. Like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Nothing unreconstructed about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think he's showing who the real unreconstructed ideologue in that situation is. But yeah, basically, these people have got to come out as ideologues now. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because that, as Laura said, that manifesto is a social democratic document. Mm. And if you took it out, if you rip it out of the context of British politics, it's fairly mild. You know, if you put it yeah, in yeah. basically any European country, it would be normal. Or if you go back in history and stand on it in Britain in the 70s or whatever and before, it would be fairly normal. But as a live political intervention, it was a radical break from Thatcherism. And it's really yeah. interesting to then look at Blair's attack on it, not basically coming to terms with the fact that it's not that radical. But he's yeah. so upset by the fact that it's an intervention against Thatcherism, essentially, that he's having to pretend that it's more radical than it really is. It's yeah. kind of, you know, that's I think that's very revealing. Even Stephen Kinnock agreed on film from the yeah, Labour documentary the when they're walking. The yeah, the yeah. That's it, when him and his dad are walking to the count and of course Neil's being like you know oh, this is unexpected is like and then Stephen's just I like still don't know what happened here Steve yeah and, it, and then <laughs> and then Stephen's just like oh it's just a good old traditional Labour manifesto uh, yeah just, common sense yeah. Labour policies I think he says <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> well it's still very perplexing Steve yeah well it's uh, reasonable and it's obviously you know a lot of common sense mainstream Labour policies in the manifesto. So, and they obviously yeah. are. To make the third point or something that Alex made, these are not policies that people on the Labour right disagree with. The only people who disagree with Labour's domestic agenda are genuinely really, really right-wing, ultra-free market neoliberals like yeah. Tony Blair. And it shows how <laughs> alien people like Blair and Mandelson and Alistair Campbell and the people who, you know, they've only praised Corbyn's temperament during the campaign, not actually anything of political substance. Mm. It really shows how alien they are to Labour's traditions and how they're pushing a very, very reactionary agenda. And there were only ever a small group of people whose views never commanded a great amount of popular support. And also, and how, and how New Labour was always the exception. New Labour Corbyn was an aberration. Yeah. Is, Corbynism is not the exception. Blair, Brown, Mandelson they were the exception. Mm. Yeah. They're also terrible strategists, or at least they made themselves out to be terrible strategists. Because I remember during the general election campaign, you had Alistair Campbell, Blair's spin doctor, and then you had Tom Baldwin, Ed Miliband's spin doctor. You know, if they'd be on, for example, Peston every Sunday, they'd be on that croissant thing, that table with yeah. croissants. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and every week they'd be saying Labour should be making Brexit the central issue of this election. Labour should be talking more about Brexit. And you think, why the fuck? 
would Labour talk yeah. more about Brexit yeah. in this? Yeah. That's exactly what Theresa May wants them to do. And it might yeah. be that Campbell and Baldwin actually hoped that Labour would talk about Brexit because that would discredit the left and blah, blah, blah. You know, they're yeah. using it as a fact. Maybe. But, you know, just to say them at their word, they basically proposed a strategy for Labour's electoral campaign, which would have been suicidal and was ignored. Yeah. And the result Talk was... about the most divisive issue that Theresa May is actually quite strong on. Yeah. Um, in her own way. So <laughs> considering that their claim to fame is competence and pragmatism and the fact that they can win elections, you know, they're always going on, what matters is winning. Well, I mean, they got it pretty wrong on that occasion. So I think maybe maybe they're not the geniuses we all thought. Yeah, well, that's what they've all settled into post-election as well. This kind of Brexit is the only thing that matters narrative. And there's some really desperate attempts for people to launder their tattered reputations using Brexit as the pretext. For instance, when Corbyn did a tweet the other day critical of the Iraq war, and Alistair Campbell <laughs> quote tweeted it, just <laughs> complaining, what about Brexit? Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's like literally showing up to the scene of a crime where you've just personally murdered somebody with the blood-covered knife and starting screaming at the police officer. Like, not calling Corbin a cop, by the way. But starting screaming at the police officer like, someone got robbed down the street, you fucker! Why aren't you looking at that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely remarkable. But So they seem to be trying to establish a new political base outside of the Labour Party, which provides a sort of reactionary alternative to Corbyn's left-wing politics that can maintain the neoliberalism with a friendly face mm. that provides the foundation of their political outlook. Yeah, spot on. Yeah. In fact, I was talking to you about this, Alex, the Chukaramuna trajectory. <laughs> <laughs> what, what were we saying about that? <laughs> that it's the most brazenly cynical career trajectory in British political history, essentially. You know, he's gone from being on the soft left, to being a Blairite, to being a leadership candidate, to dropping out of a leadership contest in 2015, to laying low as a backbencher, to sort of supporting Owen Smith in the coup, but mm. not really supporting him, doing one article towards the end of the campaign when it was clear that he'd lost, and then recording a video message of congratulations to Corbyn before the result had even been announced and then rebranding himself as Mr Legitimate Concerns, talking shit about immigration for several months, talking shit about how immigrants aren't immigrating properly, saying we should be prepared to leave the single market in order to end free movement, yeah. whilst all this while he collects these massive donations, obviously planning a leadership contest, <laughs> then Oh, fuck! Labour just did well at the 2017 general election. All of a sudden, Chuck has decided the single market is great! And free free movement is great! But actually, sorry, I missed a crucial bit out. Labour do well at the 2017 general election. Chuka offers to serve in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet. <laughs> and naturally, Corbyn's like, nah, you're, you're alright, mate. And, <laughs> and uh, that's when Chuka rebrands after a year of being one of the most anti-immigration people on the Labour benches as, like, Mr. Single Market. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing that really surprises me about Chuka Ramana still is that, as you say, he started off as a compass candidate, soft left. Well, I mean, they were kind of quite left at the time yeah. when he got selected for his seat in Streatham. 
And there's funny if you go if you find Luke Akers old blogs, there are some blogs by Luke Akers, you know, raging with Shakaramuna being selected as the left winger. <laughs> and then and then for some reason during the Miliband period he went from being on the soft left where Miliband was, you know, where he could have been an integral part of that particular project, mm. moved to becoming mm. a Blairite by twenty fifteen, just as everybody else has thought this Blairism stuff's load of rubbish. So yeah, it's, it's, um, I think really it's just odd. there was a bit of a consensus in Labour, you know, I guess towards the tail end of Miliband and in the immediate aftermath of his leadership that Labour needed to move pretty decisively to the right. Mm -hmm. This was a consensus in the parliamentary party and in the commentariat, obviously not in the Labour membership because Jeremy Corbyn's now Labour leader, mm -hmm. but I genuinely think he probably had all these like journalists and spad dickheads in his ear for like several years being like the centre ground, Chucker, that's where it's really at, the radical centre. Yeah, you know, there was that famous tweet by Michael Crick, wasn't there, in the early days of the Labour leadership election in 2015, when he said, by my law of leadership contests, you should keep your eye on Liz Kendall. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> that's what they believe, isn't it? They actually genuinely believe that that's where the Labour membership would be. That they would all. I think this is a really common thing amongst journalists. They just assume that the general public or that any specific group they're talking about has the same opinion as them. So when <laughs> Andrew Neil was interviewing Harriet Harman, if you remember when, during the Labour leadership election in 2015, the Tories brought in the welfare bill, which is quite draconian, going to reduce lots of benefits and so on. And Harriet mm. Harman was acting leader of the Labour Party and she said Labour should abstain not yeah. vote against it. Well, actually, she wanted to vote for it to start with, but in the shadow cabinet, she was argued against. She eventually, they came out they were going to abstain because she said the election has showed that the public wanted Labour to listen to them on benefits and be harder on benefits grounded or whatever. And then Andrew Neil interviewed her on the Sunday Politics on BBC and he got to the end of the interview of her saying, well, it's complete crap, which has just destroyed her credibility in the Labour Party and basically meant that Jeremy Corbyn's definitely going to win the Labour leadership election. And yeah. Andrew Neil says to her, if you'd have run for leader and said some of this stuff, you would have done very well. I mean... <laughs> No, she's done about as well as Liz Kendall at the moment. <laughs> Can we talk about that, actually? Because I think we should wrap up soon. But obviously this book covers Corbyn's ascent to the leadership as well as the general election. So I was going to say, actually, let's talk a bit about, or can you, Alex, talk a bit about the context that led to Jeremy Corbyn becoming leader in the first place? So as we were saying, there was this kind of overwhelmingly right-wing consensus. And for New Socialist magazine, all of us who are editors there basically have got to write this piece called Taking Stock of Corbynism and our, our thoughts on how, um, like, like, basically how... This is like homework or something. <laughs> kind of, well, it's basically like about how the project is progressing. And I was thinking of, rather than just kind of some state of Corbynism address, I, I was thinking of writing something about the discourse in the immediate run-up to his election as Labour leader. Mm. So something which talks about Chris Leslie's, <laughs> then-Shadow Chancellor Chris Leslie's Guardian interview, where he talks about how great landlords are oh, and how yeah. they need to appeal to uh, not the working class but another major social group called the witch magazine strata of society <laughs> and yeah and Tristram Hunt was also into defining people by their consumer choices so he talked about appealing to the John Lewis couple and then Andy Burnham decided he needed an offer that appealed to the working class more so he said actually we need to appeal to little man and, <laughs> and I 
I think more than just about anything else, the most immediate cause for Jeremy Corbyn was just how right-wing every major figure in the Labour Party went at the start of the 2015 leadership election. So I think the section of the book on that period of time is excellent in just the way these people completely misjudged the mood of their party and of the country. Mm. Yeah, I like the way that this interview has had no consideration for the dimension of time. Like when we started <laughs> in the general election, now we're going back. <laughs> Fine. Um, <laughs> it's non-linear warfare. <laughs> I quote Emily Thornbury saying that I actually stopped her on a bike. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I saw her and I stopped her and I said, oh, what do you think of what's happened to Jeremy Corbyn being elected Labour leader? And she said that she thought that the fact that the Blairites launched this assault after the general election, after Miliband was defeated and went so far to the right and their rhetoric got so bizarre and kind of extreme and that they were making people feel like they should look into their souls just because they were on the left. And she reckoned yeah. that created the first backlash amongst the membership, which propelled Jeremy Corbyn before lots of people from outside had come in. If it is your turn to... Uh... Jeremy Corbyn. So it is. You know, the issue that I've raised concern with you about is your proposal for the Bank of England to print money to pay for schools or transport. In those circumstances, do you believe that the government would have to pay that money back to the Bank of England, or do you think that this is free money? If you ditch the printing money, we could set out a credible alternative. That means we don't have to do George Osborne's 40%. The problem is, if all you promise is something that won't stack up, you will let the Tories get away with this. You will let the Tories be able to get away with their 40% cuts to our public services. I think that would be devastating. It's an ideology of austerity that will rip apart our public services and it will hugely undermine our economy. But if we're really going to stand up to them, we've got to be strong enough and credible enough to do it, not just pretend that money will come out of thin air by printing it. Let's have a strong real I'm alternative. That you and we should work together on Yvette, doing that, but you're not doing so because you're Yvette, offering people Yvette, false I'm hope instead. I'm very pleased that you accept that the politics of austerity is one of the problems we face. We went into the last election promising cuts. We went into the 2010 election promising cuts. Are we going to go into a 2020 election because Osborne will not have balanced the books by that stage saying, well, an incoming Labour government, the first thing we've got to do is make more cuts in order to make ourselves credible. I say invest to grow, yes, you can't yeah. cut your way to prosperity. You actually look. One of the important things that's never said about the 2015 leadership campaign or about Corbyn's rise is it's not people from outside flooding in that initially put Corbyn in the lead. He's in the lead amongst existing Labour members. Yeah. Starting. Yeah. So that was something that happened inside the Labour Party. And I think that the reaction to the Blairites was a really big part of that because it was coordinated. I mean, I remember watching the Marsh show on the weekend after the general election. And you had Chakra Munna there who was launching his leadership campaign, short-lived one, and Peter Mandelson. Mm. Peter Mandelson was sitting there endorsing him in this weird cryptic way, saying, I think we have a way to go, but he'll get there or something. And then you had Tristram Hunt there. I mean, Tristram Hunt played a blinder in that. You know, he didn't even get the nominations, but in the short time that he was a candidate for leadership of the Labour Party, he gave us so many great memories. He went on... <laughs> question time and said that before the crash, Labour hadn't had sufficient leeway in the public expenditure to deal with the effects of a banking crisis. The effects of the banking crisis cost £100 billion. He presumably 
you seem to be saying that we should have had a hundred billion pound surplus uh, before, just in case. <laughs> on the off chance that we need to give hundred billion pounds to bankers, which obviously would crash the economy instantly. And then the best one was where he said, as you say, that Labour had to appeal to John Lewis couples and people who aspire to shop in Waitrose. Who <laughs> aspire to yeah. shop in Waitrose? That is when I, my main aspiration. When I get a better job, I'm going to be able to shop anyway. And <laughs> what's funny about that is the local newspaper in his constituency in Stoke pointed out that there isn't a Waitrose in Stoke. So this was not, <laughs> not a very good electoral strategy for Christian Hunt himself. And when they asked Waitrose if they had any plans to open a store in Stoke, Waitrose said no because the people of Stoke are not upmarket enough. <laughs> wow. so this is um, Christian Hunt in tune with his constituency yeah. and obviously he cared so much about his constituents and he cared so much about the Labour Party that when it turned out that the Labour Party didn't want him he just left at the worst possible time and went and got a job in the Victorian Albert Museum and obviously left yeah. the rest of us to go and fight UKIP and Paul Nuttall in Stoke Corbyn's Waterloo Corbyn's Waterloo according to John Harris who then had an epiphany in the general election when he went into a hairdresser's and found that not everybody hated Corbyn <laughs> I definitely support him on the going into a hairdresser dresser's front. I think that's <laughs> something John Harris like, sorely needs. He I, has, I love... he has. Like, he's got a new, oh. new cut, yeah, yeah. Oh, really? What's it like? It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> that's not exactly a ring. It's, it's not, it doesn't look like, you know, it's, it's, it's all right. It's good. Peanut heads. What I loved about John Harris was that after the general election, he did that one piece for The Guardian, like, the pundits were wrong. I was wrong. Mm. And then he got a load of people from the left having a go at him for the usual reasons. And then he did a second piece, which was like, actually, <laughs> I was basically right. <laughs> and the people saying I'm wrong of the people who are really wrong and I'm just gonna continue as I was going on because like <laughs> fuck all of you yeah great pundit but yeah I mean that was important I think you should do what you say I think you should write about that period after the 2015 election and how the Blairites managed to get it so wrong how to how did, yeah. I just misjudged mm. the tone and then Chris Leslie I mean I hadn't seen that Chris Leslie article until Jack found it mm. where he says that they need to appeal to people who read which and it, what makes me laugh I mean the Twitter account EL4C which I think is a great Twitter account yeah. did a tweet recently which was perfect it just said centrist in 2015 we have to appeal to people who read which and shop in Waitrose centrist in 2017 or 2018 momentum are a bunch of middle class wankers <laughs> <laughs> The U-turn from the Blair era doctrine of we cannot talk about class, class no longer exists, we're all middle class now, to their thing now of like, if anybody wants like any kind of mild redistribution of wealth to the poorest, then they're a fucking like croissant munching wind chime, (laughs) hanging bourgeois piece of landed gentry shit. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Even Eminem drinks coffee, as Helen Lewis. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think in fact a lot of working class people from Detroit do. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Oh. No, it's amazing because it is actually a working class drink in America. I mean, it's not exactly a middle class drink here, but it's a working class drink. In yeah, America. yeah, and yeah. Like fill a coffee. Yeah. The fact that Eminem rapped that he was going to drop a hot coffee pot on Donald Trump for that to be considered that he's you know gone middle class, unbelievable. But- <laughs> <laughs> We might have sort of reached a natural conclusion, Mm. almost, right at the start of the (laughs) Gordon era. (laughs) 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 We'll finish as we mean to... Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. never mind. I don't know. know. Finish as we we meant to begin. That's it. Yeah. Yes. You two, do you have any questions for Alex or anything? Who's that to? No. I... Well, uh, presumably not you, Alex, well, I think you unless you have any questions for yourself. Alex, do you have any questions for yourself? <laughs> <laughs>
Why the hell did I write that book? It took ages. It's not going to make me any money. That's my question to myself. Oh, <laughs> that's man. good, though. Surely the lucrative Corbin Easter landed gentry. That's the audience you want to cultivate. <laughs> yeah. People do tweet me, uh, oh, so you're cashing in on it then? You've written a book about Corbynism, you're cashing in on it. Like, <laughs> you're the I mean, Ian Dunn of Corbynism. You know nothing about publishing, do you? Nobody makes money from books except J.K. Rowling. Yeah. <laughs> what other projects are you going to be moving on to next after the candidate? Um, at the moment, I'm editing a book about the NHS, nice. which is going to be Alison Pollock's book. Because that's what I did for a before I started writing The Candidate was that I was editing other people's books. And then after that, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'll try and see if anybody wants to buy writing for money, but it's difficult, you know. It's difficult to find people who will pay, especially if you've slagged them all off in your book. It's very difficult yeah. to find people who will pay I love yeah. how you quote many journalists in The Candidate. You give them their end little section at the top of some chapters, which is just incredible. So it's there forever yeah. in print, you know, for their yeah. terrible, terrible takes. Definitely adopted the tactic that I'll burn every bridge as I come to it <laughs> the real politics the real strategy. politics way <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, the candidate will be an essential bit of Labour reading for anyone interested in the Labour movement in the years to come definitely I can't recommend it to people enough it's a fantastic yeah, book Alex yeah. thank you very much that's really kind of you to say yeah I think it's a great book as well Alex and it's great to have you on the show it's been an excellent talk and I think our listeners are going to really enjoy this hope so thank I'm you very sure. much for having well, me well thanks again for coming on man it's been oh. an absolute pleasure mate thank you yeah so who wants to do the honours with taking us out of this take us out of EU yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this has been the Real Politic Podcast we've been joined today by the author of The Candidate Alex Nuns and also joining us has been Laura Tid and Jack Frame oh, Reed doxed 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 You've said actual your actual name doxing me. We've said your actual oh, name. Oh, sorry. Like, loads of episodes. Oh, oh, sorry. Sorry. Laura. Sorry. Sure, Laura. Sure I'm <laughs> Trying to pitch articles to the Guardian at like 2 a.m. through tears. Going, oh, I wish I hadn't sent them all those piss tweets. <laughs> 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 Thank you again for joining us and sitting through several minutes of inane ramblings there, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Alex. Legend. No Thank you. Cheers, man. All right. Shall I go now, then? We can all go, go, go now. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, solidarity, folks. Enjoy... <laughs> no, no I was, I was to the listeners, but I was to the listeners. That was me saying oh, sorry. sorry. But, yeah. but see, I was saying, shall I go now? Because I was thinking maybe you guys record something afterwards or whatever. Or oh, I don't oh, know. oh no, no, we just. I think we got too much fucking material for this. <laughs> two hours, quarter, two hours, eighteen. Like, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. Hefty episode. But anyway, Tom. That's all I've got Tom? to say. Yeah. Cool. What more can I say? <laughs> Honestly, thank you so much again for doing this recording, Alex. It's, right. Yeah, yeah, it's been it. really, really good. Thank you for promoting oh, my yeah. book. I mean, it's like you're doing me a favour. Oh no problem, yeah, man. It's a good Wait, fucking book, and everyone should read it. <laughs> We're doing that. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Which Labour MP <laughs> was it who, when he resigned his seat, he just went on an all-out Twitter rage at Matt Zab cousin? What, what was his name? Michael Dugger. <laughs> No journalists seem to see the way he behaved as wrecking. Like when he left yeah. Parliament, they all acted as if he hadn't just acted disgracefully for months. It's because he was their main source. He's yeah. a senior Labour, and he was the one who was. Um, but the funny yeah. thing was, he's, he was friends with Tom Watson, and before the election, John Landsman and John McDonnell went along to have a meeting with Tom Watson during the leadership campaign in 2015. Tom Watson said, "Don't put Duggar in the shadow cabinet. He'll yeah. be just he'll be too disruptive, even though he's my yeah. friend." And they, yeah. They <laughs> But then they had to sack him like a like, few minutes later because he was. Yeah. Just, you know.
Wow. There are lots of Michael Duggar stories, though, I think is the moral of the yeah, story. Yeah, so he was just a very prolific cunt, like. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's a great description. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. That's fair. Anyway, everyone have a lovely Saturday evening. Yeah, cool. have a smashing night, guys. All right, see you later. Yeah, man. Take care, guys. Take care. Bye. does the Labour Party offer? Nationalisation without compensation. Printing money. <laughs> marginal. Who are the hard left? Marginal. Is, hard is, left my, is my question. Chris, who are the hard left? <laughs>
<laughs> marginalizing moderate voices within the party. Uh, so this is real politic now. <laughs> um, I did it. I did yeah. it, guys. <laughs> Laura, Laura did entryism on Trash Future, and now it's real politic. <laughs> it's tech. It's exciting. It's young people. It's crowdsourcing.